Well, good morning. As we continue uh, our series through the life of Jesus, uh, we've kind of been going through for the last several weeks uh, the introduction, the first year of Jesus' ministry, kind of the introduction of who he is. Um, and then we went into the years of popularity or the year of popularity where he did many miracles and became very popular with the, the crowd and people would begin to follow him. And they would look to him uh, mostly for temporal, uh, momentary things, mostly things of their flesh. They're very uh, selfish in the, in the way that they're, they're um, following after him. And then in the last year, we get into the year of opposition, where all the, the three years of his ministry is kind of coming to a head. And people are starting to come to the point where they're going to have to, a crux, where they're going to have to make a decision on who Jesus is. And it's a hard question. That many of the, the, especially the religious leaders of that day, were having to wrestle with. And so this morning, we'll continue to talk through that. Uh, we're going to go through one of the, another one of the I am statements. Now, last week, JP talked about that Jesus says that, uh, that I am uh, before Abraham was. And the religious leaders did not like that. Uh, Jesus was basically telling the religious leaders, you don't even know who Abraham is because Abraham knows me and he knows my father. And if you knew Abraham, then you too would know me and know the father. And so that was, that was a, a kind of cracking of the egg of opposition, right? They're starting to rub against the religious leaders, those that were uh, in the synagogue, those that were using and titled as the teachers of that day. So this morning we're going to go into another I am statement where, as Mike just read, Jesus declares that I am the good shepherd. This is an interesting text because uh, in our Bible we have chapters and verses, but really chapter 9 and chapter 10, they kind of all go together. We're coming off the, the hills in chapter 9 where Jesus, and you may be familiar with the story, he heals a blind man. Maybe you remember the story when we were in, in uh, kids, if you grew up in the church, uh, Jesus spat on the, the, the ground and made some mud and put some mud on the, the blind man's eyes and, and sent him, the man off to go wash his eyes. And he went to go wash his eyes. And, and once he cleaned his face, then he was able to see for the first time in his life. He was born blind and then he what, cleans his eyes. Jesus says, go and wash and you'll be healed. So he goes and, and people are like uh, excited about that. And the Pharisees come and they're like, well, who healed you on the Sabbath? They didn't care that he was healed. Who did it on the Sabbath? Who did it on the day of rest? And he said, well, Jesus did. And the, the, the Pharisees didn't like that he did that. So he, uh, the Pharisees were like, well, maybe he was never blind in the first place. Bring me, bring me this blind man's parents. So he brings the parents and the parents say, hey, he's of age. You, you can ask him this question. It's because the parents knew that if they were to profess that Jesus had done this miracle, then they too, they would have been cast out of the synagogue. And so the Pharisees go back to the blind man and says again, hey, who did this? And this, this blind man begins to teach them about who Jesus is. And their response to the blind man is, is that they cast him out of the synagogue. And Jesus got ear of this happening. And Jesus goes to the blind man. Now, remember, the blind man had not seen Jesus yet. Right. He'd only heard Jesus and he obeyed and he had mud on his eyes. But he went and cleaned off and he came back. Jesus was gone. And so Jesus comes and approaches the blind man and says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, once blind man says, yes, I, I want to believe, I want to see. And he says, well, I am he. And the man began to worship 
Jesus right there. And some of the Pharisees were kind of standing around the edges hearing what was going on. And Jesus then said, and these that think that they're, that they can see, they're actually blind. And he's talking directly to the Pharisees, calling them blind. You do not see what the truth actually is as it stands right there in front of them. And it goes right into John 10. So there's no bridge, there's no break. It's one constant story, and that's what we're going to pick up today is in John in John 10. Uh, this is a, a cool text because you hear the story I just told you, and I think about it when you put yourself in that same scene. Man, Jesus is only being incredibly patient with these Pharisees. Incredibly kind. He's, he's extending a grace that they don't deserve. Well, it's the same kindness and the same grace and the same mercy that we today don't deserve either. And Jesus looks and he, and he begins in John 10 with a, um, a precursor, a statement that he says a lot. And when he usually says this, this, state, this phrase, it means that I'm about to speak directly to a certain situation. Right? So he starts off with, truly, truly, I say to you. And so what Jesus is saying is that I'm about to speak directly to the hearts of those that are hearing. Now, you need to understand the audience as we go through this, this chapter. is religious leaders and Jews. There, there may be a couple of Gentiles kind of standing on the side, but most of these folks are going to be Jewish, and most of them are going to be religious leaders. And so they already have some sort of rub or, or uh, disdain against who Jesus is. All right, so he's speaking directly to um, the, the blindness of the Pharisees' hearts. We're going to go through these 21 verses, and it's kind of broken up in three different ways. Uh, verses 1 through 6, he's laying the, the groundwork, as you heard Mike. He tells this, this uh, metaphor. In verses 7 through, uh, uh, 7 through 16, he starts to, talk, to unpack the story. He starts unpacking the metaphor. He's like, well, I gave you this example, and I want to unpack what it means. And then verses 17 through 21 he proclaims and declares why he can teach what he's teaching with the authority that he has because he's the son of God. All right, so we'll jump into this verse uh, 1 through 6. I just want to read that to you quickly. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So historically, uh, these people, these Jews, would have known what a shepherd is. That's not, that wasn't baffling to them. What's baffling to them is like, why are you telling me the story? You just called me blind a couple minutes ago, and now you're telling me a, a story about some shepherds and sheep. I don't understand. But historically, what would happen, the, the, the normal schedule of a shepherd, was that the shepherd would take the sheep out, and they would graze, and he would lead them to green grass uh, every day, usually into the dark. And then when it, the, the shepherd got tired, he would actually bring the, the sheep back into what would be a sheepfold or a, a pen, a fairly large pen where all the sheep would fit with plenty of room. And then he would hire a gatekeeper to come and sit at the gate. And then he would go to his family and rest and sleep, and then he'd return in the morning. Well, that gatekeeper's job was to sit at the one gate. 
And any sheep, in any uh, pen, sheep pen, there would only be one way in, one way out. There weren't multiple entrances and exits, it's just one. And so the hired hand, the gatekeeper, would sit right there and would wait. And that job, the job of that gatekeeper was to make sure that no damage or none of the sheep were, were stolen. Or if a, a wolf or somebody came, then he would have to fight uh, this, this uh, attacker away. Thieves would commonly come in the backside of the pens at night. And they'd jump over the fence and they'd take one sheep and they'd throw it over the, the fence and then they would take it for wool or for meat. And so there was, that was a common occurrence, but a gatekeeper is only one and his job was to keep the front of the gate. So he didn't have the ability to always be able to walk around and check all the, the points. So in the morning, the shepherd would return. And when the shepherd would return, the sheep, just like if you have a puppy and they see you for the first time, would get pretty excited. The sheep would come and they, they, would, they would hear the shepherd's voice. They would know that that's my shepherd. That's the one that's going to take me out of this fence and take me to get food. And very commonly in that time, I know it sounds strange, but even then, a shepherd would even name the sheep. Now, probably not like, you know, Donner, Dancer, Prancer or anything like that. It would be more of um, an identifier of the sheep. Spot. Left or black ear. Blue eye. You know, whatever that is, they would name the sheep so that they would know uh, the head, how many there were. But then they'd also know the elements, uh, the elements of each sheep. If it had uh, a, a broken hoof or if it was blind in one one side or it couldn't hear out of one side, the shepherd would know the details of each one of these sheep. And in return, the sheep would actually know the shepherd's voice because the sheep was desperately needy to survive Right? Their survival was based off of a good shepherd. So that's the kind of the historical piece of that. But that doesn't quite identify why Jesus uses this metaphor to them. He doesn't really identify in the first six verses who the sheep are and who the shepherd is and who the gatekeeper is or anything like that. All he's doing is he's just unpacking this thing. He looks and he knows that, well, they don't really get what I'm saying. But it was important because in the Old Testament, we would always see that uh, the, the word shepherd or the name shepherd was commonly used. In chapter 9, the Pharisees would even say that Moses was their, their, their leader, their shepherd, the one that they would follow. Right? And so there were shepherds throughout the Old Testament. There were shepherds. Moses, you had uh, Abraham, Isaac, David was a shepherd. Even in Ezekiel 34, 22 and 23, the Pharisees would have known that, that passage. And they would have been like, we're, our shepherd is, is one that's going to lead us, is going to look a lot like David looked. They, even, they, would, they would recite this and say, I will rescue my flock, the Lord says. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so that's what they're expecting. They're expecting a, a king-like Messiah or a king-like shepherd to come and, and rescue them. But all the shepherds throughout the Old Testament are only pointing to one that is greater and better than they are. Because they failed over and over again. But with great conviction, because of the Lord, that they would go to the Lord and they would offer some sort of sacrifice. And they would want to continue to desire to honor God by shepherding. Well, there's also false shepherds. There are those that the authorities of the government would place over people. Those people would actually lord over them without conviction, without obedience, 
presenting to them um, something uh, false, a false hope to a false gods, offering false promises. And so when we look at this metaphor that Jesus, just the first six, he's talking about a shepherd and they're all sitting there going, all right, there's different thoughts, just like you're having different thoughts in your mind right now of what a good shepherd and what a bad shepherd is. They were having the same thing. And what Jesus is doing is that he's setting the stage that this good shepherd is going to be the Messiah. The good shepherd is the one that's going to come and perfectly lead you and provide for you and care for you. He's setting the stage. He's, he's setting the presence that one's going to come that's better than those from the Old Testament. That's going to come and rescue you. Right? So he hasn't said that he's the shepherd yet, but he's about to, right? But he also wants to point out that those shepherds that they may have been coming to mind and thinking about, they only provided temporal leadership. They only existed for so long. They could only do small amounts of things. They were limited to their abilities. And so Jesus goes on and he starts to unpack this. So in verse 7 he says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go on and go, go in and out and find green pasture. So why does Jesus call himself the door here? There's several times in the New Testament where that type of language is being used. Jesus calls himself the ladder between, the, between heaven and earth. He calls himself the way, which would be most common the uh, interpretation of when he calls himself the door here. It's a way. It's one way. It's a, it's a silo of you're going in this way and there's no way out or in except for you to exit the same way you came in. And what he's doing is that he's proclaiming that there is only one way in and out of the pen, but also only one way in to understanding who the father is. That salvation is only going to come in one way. To be a part of this flock, it's not going to be your works. It's not going to be your religion. It's not your inheritance. Nothing else is going to bring you salvation unless you enter through this one door. And Jesus is saying, and I am that door. Which is a strange metaphor. Right? But he's declaring, he's proclaiming that there's only one way. And he needs the Jewish, remember we're talking to a Jewish culture here, that you need to know that the Messiah is the only way. And he's saying that I am the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then in verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundant. So again, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he's basically saying, and you are the thieves and the robbers. You have come to kill and steal and destroy. You come in darkness, yet you want to sit on the stool of righteousness. You come and you steal my sheep and you make a, a gain off of them. They provide food for you and they provide covering for you and, you and you are making an inheritance from them. He looks at the Pharisees and says, you've, you've lorded over these, these sheep with legalism and judgment. He looks at the Sadducees and he says, man, you have guilted them into giving more into the synagogue. You're just making a profit off of these sheep. And it's all for your own self-righteousness. 
So he's looking at these, this Jewish crowd and saying, and it's you. And you're the ones that are proclaiming that this is what God is like. And Jesus has come and said, and I've come to, to set all that right. In our culture today, there are pastors, people that call themselves counselor, pastor, that are doing the same things. <laughs> there are dads and husbands that are doing the same things over their wives and their children, oppressing them and being dictatorial over them. There are bosses out there that own their own companies and they put the fish on their, their truck or on their door and they proclaim that they're a Christian, yet all their motivation is to make gains and not care for the sheep. And so we are the same guilt. We have the same thing that we're fighting for, to, fighting through today. We all have those same tendencies to be thieves and robbers and work in darkness, yet want to have a position of righteousness. And listen, when Jesus is saying these things to the Pharisees, they are offended. That's why there's opposition. That's why this is the year of opposition. The things that Jesus is going to say, they're not going to be like, good point. That's me right there. They're being rubbed. They're being offended by his teaching. And so we have to ask the question, how then can Jesus come and offer life to sheep, but offer it in an abundant way? He goes on in verse 11 and says, And I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf, the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. How does Jesus offer abundant life? Well, he offers his life. He's willing to lay down his life for the life of his sheep. This text is not about the sheep. This text is about the shepherd. And that's what he's trying to proclaim. That's what he's trying, the point that he's trying to get across. And everyone that's listening has some sort of level of understanding of what it meant to be a shepherd. They understood that it was a dangerous vocation. When they were out in the pasture with all the sheep, you know, maybe there's a hundred sheep and this one, this one person had to care for all of them and keep them kind of corralled and make sure they weren't wandering off and make sure that, that they don't get too close to the wood line where the wolf may be sitting salivating to grab a, a sheep. It was a dangerous job. Sometimes that, that, that shepherd would have to leave the 99 to go find the one that was lost, Right? Sometimes the sheep, the shepherd would have to stand in between the sheep and danger. Willing to give his life. But the one thing that no shepherd would wake up that morning and say, hey, today's the day that I hope to find myself in the, cra- in the, the, the grasp of a wolf. When a shepherd were to die in the, the, the work field, it was an accident. It wasn't something they were preparing to do. It's funny, the hired hand has, uh, in the, the Mishnah, actually gives a job description, what a hired hand would be. The, the person that's sitting at the gate is that if one wolf came, then that hired hand, that gatekeeper would have to stand and fight the wolf away. But if two wolves came, 
then they were allowed to leave and anything that was lost would not be on on them any longer. It was in their contract. What Jesus is saying is that I don't operate operate on contracts. Operate on this promise that I'm going to lay my life down. It's not an accident what Jesus does. When a shepherd dies in the, in the work field, it's usually an accident. When Jesus says this, he's saying, I've come and I know the hour. And I've come to give my life for your life. I've come so that you can have not just life, but abundant life. Not just a temporary, short-lived life, but an eternal life. One that, where you are going to be in a state of worship and, and awe of the presence of the Father. Jesus says that there's a difference between a shepherd and the shepherd. The language here is very important. He's not saying that he's just another shepherd. He's saying that I am the good shepherd, the one that has come to fulfill all of this. Jesus is telling them that he's the better and greater shepherd than all of those in the past. And verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So go back to the original imagery that Jesus is talking about at the very beginning. He's talking about the sheep and the pen. And the shepherd arrives. And the sheep are excited because they know the shepherd's voice. And he goes to the gatekeeper and the gatekeeper knows that this is the shepherd. He's the owner of these sheep. He's the one that cares for them and protects for them and provides for them. And he lets the, that, the, the shepherd in and the shepherd opens and he says, come here, come to me. And the sheep walk out of the pen with great confidence that this shepherd is going to lead them to green pasture. That this, this shepherd is going to care for them in a way that they don't know how to care for themselves. There's, a, there's something about sheep. They're kind of dumb. And they, they follow, but they know the name. I mean, they know the voice of their shepherd. And they're willing to do whatever that shepherd tells them to do. Why? Because they are desperate. They're desperate sheep, and they're desperate for someone to give them some guidance. I can relate. <laughs> I'm that dumb sheep needing someone to give me some guidance on how to live this abundant life. To live this life that is, that is in Christ. And what he's telling this, this Jewish audience is that if you... Know that I'm your shepherd. You're going to come and I'm going to call you out of what you think is comfortable and what you think is safe. I'm going to call you out of Judaism. And I'm going to call you into being my disciples. I'm going to call you away from the legalities of being Jewish. And now I'm going to call you into the freedom of being a disciple of mine. They're calling them, he's calling them into greener pastures. And then he says, and when I call you, listen, there's other sheep out there that aren't like you. They're not Jewish. They're Gentile. And we're going to go find them. And we're going to invite them into the fold. And you're going to tell them what a good shepherd I am. 
And, the, and our church is going to grow. And Jew and Gentile alike are going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus knows that His blood is going to be poured not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. And we should all be pretty happy about that. He gives His life so that we can have abundant life. He starts to show us what the kingdom of God is going to look like. He also tells us that these sheep are going to have some sort of spiritual discernment. That they're going to know the difference between His voice and a stranger's voice. So those that are in the fold, those that are following Christ, that they're going to know when they hear something that's false teaching. He's going to know the difference between a stranger trying to call them away from the fold than when the shepherd's saying, if you want safety and protection, you come with me. And he goes on in verse 17, and we ask the question, why does Jesus have the authority to teach and say the things that he's saying? And in verse 17, it says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So in verse 18, we see that he is showing us how, how does he have the authority? How does he give abundant life? It says that I lay down my life and I take it up again. He has the authority to do that. And nowhere else do we see it said so clearly that God is in control. That Jesus is in control of life and death. That he can lay down his life. And then he can bring it right back up again. And that's what we believe. That's what, the, that's what we, our, we hang our hat on. Leon Moore says that his death is not a result of misadventure or might of foes. Jesus laid his life down on his own accord. Already knowing the outcome. And the reaction of this Jewish audience is division. They look at it and they're saying, man, I don't know. They're clinging to, some are clinging to the explanation that, oh, this must be a demon. Only a demon could do something like that. And the other side is saying, no, a demon couldn't. And they go back to the story in in chapter 9. A demon demon couldn't uh, heal the blind. Someone that's possessed with a demon wouldn't heal the blind. God wouldn't listen to someone that has that kind of sin. And so they're divided. And what they're doing is they're deciding who Jesus is not. But they haven't come to the conclusion of who he is. So the division is that, well, he's not a demon-possessed man, but he's got some favor. Or then some of them are like, he's demon-possessed and he's crazy. Or he's Lord. And we have to get our small minds out of the thinking that we have to understand all of his ways. We have to start thinking that, that we are yet just incredibly grateful for who he is. And even that, even though the things that we read and the things that we hear, they may offend us. Our first posture, our first call is to be in a posture of worship. 
a posture of reverence of who God is. And this is only an act of the Holy Spirit for a sheep to know the shepherd's voice. Only a pricking of your heart that the Holy Spirit would enter in and that you would follow the good shepherd. Jesus goes on for the rest of the chapter and he proclaims that the Father and he, they're one. (laughs) And this only heightens the opposition. That now he's declaring that he is God. And this truth will take him to a piece of wood where he will conquer sin and he will conquer death. And he will say it is finished for those who believe. The thing we have to realize is that we're all sheep. And we're going to recognize that we are desperately needy of a shepherd that's going to lead us and care for us and protect us. And we have to be like that shepherd, willing to lay down our life and our flesh and our instincts and our selfishness and our self-righteousness and lay it down to the side because he laid his life down for us. Or you're not of the fold. And John 10 is one of those passages that says there is no sitting on the fence. There is no gray area. You are or you are not. I pray that if we're sitting there today and this is new news for you, that you will desire to be led by the one that is the good shepherd. He's the one that will lead you. He will protect you. He will grow you through grace and through mercy. He's declaring His glory through showing you who He is. He has not been defeated, but He is alive. And He has laid down His life for you so that we know what it looks like to lay down our lives. To die to the flesh and to know we have all we ever will ever, ever need in the Good Shepherd.